So turn in your Bibles to Zechariah, um, and as you're doing that, I'm going to, we'll pray one more time as we get ready to open the Word. So Lord, I thank you once again for this opportunity, and thank you for your Word and uh, your prophecy through Zechariah, and God, I just pray that uh, you will just open our hearts to the truth of it. Um, Lord, we can do nothing without you. We need your Spirit just dwelling and uh, convicting and drawing us unto you, Lord, so we just pray that Uh, You will do something here tonight as we open your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we continue to look at the book of Zechariah, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 6 tonight. And just to give you a little bit of info about where we're at, most of you have been here for every week, but I will give us our timing again on Zechariah um, because it's, it's important for the prophecy. It's, he's writing to a group of people who have returned from Babylon, from Babylonian exile, and, and those people um, God needed to encourage. They were, they were a small group brought back to continue work rebuilding the temple, and they were dealing with hardships. You know, you can think about if you're dealing with hardships in life, you need to be encouraged by God. They had external forces, Samaritans coming against them. They had a little bit of, uh, they had no defenses really to speak of. They've come back to Jerusalem, no walls built. They were desperate need of encouragement and the knowledge of God. You know, they were probably wondering, you know, about their future. Were they going to make it? It was a small group. Are they going to make it? Are they going to, you know, this rebuilding of the temple? Is somebody just going to come in and wipe it back out again? Those types of things. Would it last? Would they survive? So in this moment, that's when God raises up Zechariah to to come along and talk to them. So I mentioned the first week that Zechariah's name means God remembers, and that's one of the things that they, they needed to know that was God was remembering them. And we looked We've made it all the way up to chapter 6, but in the first five chapters, we have seen a series of visions, and that's how God chose to proclaim this message through Zechariah, was through these visions, and God's been encouraging them, and if you think about all the visions that we've seen, he's he's encouraged them in the physical state of Israel, you know, that the temple was going to be built, uh, Jerusalem was going to be restored, so those, those were important things, but also... He gave them visions that talked about their spiritual state, that they were going to be restored as the priestly nation that they were supposed to be. And um, if they would repent, turn back to God, that was all part of it, walk in obedience. And so tonight we're going to see the eighth vision that uh, Zechariah has, and we pick it up in chapter 6. So there's a key element to, if you think about rebuilding a kingdom, if you take all the... um, the visions, and you're kind of like lining them up. You get to the end here, and what's going to be? We've taken care of wickedness, and now God's going to take care of the wicked nations. That's one of the things he talks about. So God's going to judge the world, set up his kingdom, and that's what we see in the beginning of it. So there's two pieces to setting up a kingdom. One thing is you've got to knock the bad guys out, and the other thing is you put your king on the throne, and that's what we're going to see here in chapter 6. Uh, the negative is the destruction. The positive is that Christ will be reigning. So God's going to de- dethrone the world powers, and he's going to set himself up, and you know, the, he will be the, the God that's going to reign. So we're going to look at uh, verse 1 through 8. So let's look there in Zechariah 6. It says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked. And behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, and the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, see, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. So this vision speaks of the destruction of God's enemies. That's what's going on here. And if you'll remember back in chapter 1, we saw the same sort of thing. We saw horses in the beginning. And what was happening was that these horses were just standing outside of Jerusalem watching. God was not pleased. And now they've transformed into war chariots 
So here, God has called his vehicles of divine judgment out into action, and they're advancing into final judgment. They come out from between two mountains, and the mountains are mountains of bronze. So if you know Israel, Jerusalem, you've got the Mount of Olives, and you've got Mount Zion, they're right next to each other. And most scholars believe that's kind of what we're seeing if we're talking about two mountains. They were the two, two biggies. But these are mountains of bronze, so those aren't real mountains. But if that's the case, if it's like a vision of Jerusalem, we've got, we've got the Mount of Olives, you've got Mount Zion where Jerusalem's at, and the, right there is the Kidron Valley. And so there's a picture here, I believe we're seeing, of the Kidron Valley and these chariots going through the Kidron Valley and making their way out to, to take on and take out these people. Mountains speak of power, strength, right? And bronze in Scripture is always a symbol of judgment. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing judgment coming. We have judgment being released, and it's going throughout the world. There's four spirits from heaven. And another interesting thing about Scripture, when we, when we see four, a lot of times that's talking about completeness. If you think about other, like Isaiah talks about the four corners of the earth. Well, that's the whole earth. If we talk about the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west, it's completeness. That's what's going on. And so the idea is this global judgment is coming. And there's similar imagery in Revelation 6 of, of these four horsemen. So we've got four is this completeness that's happening. And we talked about in chapter 1 about these colors of horses and what they mean. Red horses are usually war and bloodshed. Black horses are famine death, that kind of thing. It's interesting if you look here in the passage, it says those are going to the north. The black's going and look what's falling behind them, white. And white was always victory. So that's going to the north. There's going to be victory there. Um, victory, triumph, and dappled horses, I believe usually speaks of plague, disease, that kind of thing. So Zechariah, he's like most of us. <clears throat> and he asks, you know, what are these things? What am I seeing here? I see these chariots. I see this going out. And these are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station. So they're divine agents of judgment. And they stand before the Lord at their station to do his bidding, which I find is interesting. These, these angels are ready at any moment to be obedient to whatever the Lord calls them to do. They, they know their position and they know they're going to go. That's, that's one of those things. These, they're drawn out, but these are drawn out by divine judgment against the ungodly and so Israel's typical attacks, you've got Israel, typical attacks would come from the north. That's the Babylon area. Nobody would come from the east. Um, the east had a desert, so they wouldn't come from that direction. They, would go, they wouldn't come from the west. That's the Mediterranean Sea. But, and the south, the big one from the south was Egypt. So you've got these two enemies that were known. And so we have this, they're going north and south, but it ends up being a judgment that's going out into the whole world. Babylon would have been to the north. So, it's, so we have this God's final judgment. What we need to understand is going to be complete. It's going to be something that's going to cover the world. Nothing's going to escape. No one's going to be left out. It's a worldwide judgment on the nations. And we see that God says that this judgment has quieted his spirit, which um, he's particularly satisfied with those who went to the north country. That's where he went. The, the worst of all the enemies was Babylon and that has quieted his spirit. And I don't know if you remember back in chapter 1, but everybody was at peace, everybody was at rest, and in chapter 1, God says, I'm not at rest, I'm not at peace. And yet here in chapter 6, we have like these bookends on what's going on, and he says, I'm finally at rest because God's enemies are being taken care of. His spirit is quieted, and God will rest when his enemies have been dealt with. So for Zechariah and, and Israel at this time, God was assuring them that they, would, they were not going to be bothered by Babylon again. That was kind of one of the things he's saying here. You know, victories, we're going victory in the north, and they're going to be able to continue their work on the temple. And for all intents and purposes, Babylon didn't bother them again. God was in control. They could be assured that they were going to be protected by the armies of God. What a thing that they needed to know. And when we see this vision play out, we see the sovereign power of God. His justice is being accomplished. He's going to deal with his enemies in his time. So when we get frustrated looking at wickedness reigning in our world, God is going to take care of these things. And we can take comfort in that. 
Um, he's not oblivious to the state of the world. God sees everything that's going on. He's going to bring judgment. If anything, that should push us to say, let people know. God's given us an eye. He's given us view into, hey, I'm a God that's going to judge. And so we should go out and say, you know, you don't want to be on the place where God's going to be judging you. And this brings us to the end of the vision. So when we get to chat, verse 8, that's the end of the visions that he's had. And I just want to kind of give you a summarization of, of what he's gone through. God saw his people. Um, he's with them. He's not happy about the nations, the things that are going on. God's in control, and he's going to bring judgment on the nations. These are the big things. The future of Jerusalem is assured. The, the, God's people are assured. They're not going to be wiped out. The temple is assured. It's going to remain. Wickedness will be dealt with, and the final destruction of that wickedness is going to bring... Uh, peace to God's spirit. The people were in distress and not at rest, if you think about their situation and where they're at. But God wanted them to be comforted through his revelation to them. But the real comfort comes when we get to verse 9 here. There's something glorious that's going to come to be. And we get to verse 9. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord of Helam, for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we talked about early on that there were 43,000 people that came down from, from Babylon, but people were still kind of coming back from Babylon. There were different car uh, caravans that were coming back. People were coming back. Um, and this is what's happening in this one passage. We have these guys. We have this group that's made up of Heldiah, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, which some of your Bibles might say Josiah. That word, that word can be in both of those. So they had come from Babylon, and they had gold and silver, and they wanted to make a contribution to the rebuilding of the temple, which would have been important. So the Lord tells Zechariah to take the silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the high priest. And this would have been an odd occurrence. You know, in the Old Testament, the priestly office and the kingly office were always kept distinct. You had uh, a priest was not a king. You know, the job of the priest was to intercede before God on behalf of the people. He was making atonement for sins, that, that type of thing, and sacrificing lamb, symbolically placing the people's sin on the lamb. That's the kind of thing that the priest was doing. That's not a king's job. The king was there to rule. So for God to want Zechariah to do this, to, to, to put this crown on the high priest, you know, the people might have been raising their eyebrows saying, what, what exactly is going on here? Why are you crowning the uh, high priest? But we see here in the passage that this is a symbol of someone who is to come. There's, he's trying to make a point. Someone else is going to be coming here. And this is a significant moment because I think it's really cool in the way the, um, the prophecies are laid out. We've gone through all this stuff. We've seen the judgment of God. And then right after that, now we see the crowning of a king right after that. And this is the way it's going to happen in, when we get to the millennial kingdom, right? The judgment. God's going to bring judgment and then... Jesus Christ is going to be crowned king. So it's really cool how this, how this prophecy lays out. This is going to be the order of things. So he says, there's another significant thing here that the Lord proclaims, behold the man whose name is the branch. And we talked about the branch, but this symbolic crowning was talking, showing that the Messiah, the ultimate king priest was going to be a man, is what he's saying here. Whose name is the branch, literally the shoot, the sprout, this messianic title, and I think it's so interesting because Pilate, when he, has, when he brings out Jesus in John 19, he says, behold the man, and he brings him out. And here we have this happening here. He was, he was announcing to the Jews in that moment, unwittingly, that 
you know, that Jesus, this was the branch that was promised, and he's bringing that out. Behold the man. Really cool there. So the Lord's distinguishing. They, they talk about this. God gives us some distinguishing things about this branch, like who this is going to be. Um, and some of it's for his first coming, and some of it's his second coming. And we see it. It says, from his place, he shall branch out. That's one of the things the branch is going to be. And so it, it means from his own people, from his own land, he's going to grow up. He's, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and man, right, in favor of God and man. So he grew up as a man. And the prophecy says the Messiah will grow up out of his own place. So he's going to be one of the people of God. That's what he's going to be. So they would know, okay, the Messiah is going to come out of our own people. He's going to grow out. He's going to sprout from the trunk of David. He's going to reign and rule. Some things that will happen in the millennial kingdom. He shall build the temple of the Lord. So there's coming a day when God's going to send the Messiah back, going to rebuild the temple. We know that. He shall bear the glory. In the end, he's going to be laden with glory and honor, and he will receive what glory and honor that he is due. That's, that's what's going to come. And he shall sit and rule on his throne, and so he shall be a priest upon his throne. So that's interesting because when a priest was serving in the priestly function, they never sat, right? They were always working. And, and he's going to sit on his throne because the priestly function of making atonement for sins had already happened on the cross. And so he's going to be sitting. In the end times, the Messiah comes to be the king and the priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both. He's going to make peace between the offices of king and the office of the priest. So oftentimes those things were at odds in the Old Testament. You'd have a, a godly priest and you'd have an ungodly king. And now he's going to bring those two. There's going to be peace between those two things. And that to me is just amazing. A society where the one who's ruling and is also, I don't want to say godly, but because Christ is God. But, you know, those two things come together because you're going to have amazing ruling, ruling right, and everything's going to be right when we have a, uh, a priest king. And so because he's ruling, there's going to be peace everywhere. We're going to have worldwide peace. And, you know, when Jesus came in his first advent, we have uh, the prophecy. Some of it was fulfilled. You know, Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, and Jesus confirms it. And then we have in Hebrews that it spoke of Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we have this priest king. We have that understanding. And they were just making this symbolic crown. So he makes this crown. They put the crown in the temple. And this would have been a memorial, a constant visual reminder that a Messiah is coming. That's what God wanted them. That's why Zechariah is doing this. Your king is not here yet. He's coming. Something better is coming and this is all going to take place in the millennial kingdom. And in verse 15, it says, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. So the far off people are the Gentiles. They're going to come help build the temple. They will make a contribution. They're going to come and worship. And this was something that was kind of hidden in the Old Testament, right? Peter learns that, oh, and Peter and Paul, they're learning that the Gentiles are part of this, part of this new covenant that they're going to be saved too. And we have it right here in Zechariah, him saying, those who are far off, the Gentiles, they're going to come in too. We're going to, it's going to, God's going to bring them all together. And they shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, there isn't going to be any question about the fact that this is absolutely accurate fulfillment. And then look at the last thing he ends this kind of these visions with is, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. So they were still under the old covenant and, um, and they needed to diligently obey God so the blessings would continue to come. And by calling them to obey, God's saying, participation in his kingdom has some dependence upon you. Are you going to be a part of this kingdom? Um, question for everyone today is, are you going to walk in obedience to the Lord? Are you going to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know, we all are in need of this. And as a member... Once you step into that kingdom, you trust in Christ as your Savior, you do move into this kingdom. Uh, Paul was talking about it in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says that we would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So God, once we become a Christian, we're, we're different. We're set apart, and we, we move out into the world. And so that ends kind of like his visions. That was all a time frame. Many people believe that 
it was like the next morning this whole thing went down. These guys were coming in. And so uh, really cool as we finish up the visions and we get into chapter 7. Um, 7 and 8 are, we see the word of God come to Zechariah as a result of some prayer that was made to the Lord. And there's a really important um, parable. Let's turn to Luke 18. Um, see, I'll get you moving around just a little bit. Luke 18. If you go there, you know, one of the things about coming to church or doing anything, when you come to know the Lord as your Savior and you get into an organization like the church, there can be ritualism. You can get into ritualistic things, but God always wants genuine. That's, that's what he wants. And, and Jesus is talking about it. In Luke 18, verse 9, uh, he says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this ta as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus was talking about this to the Pharisees and, and letting them know this was, this was a major issue, this, this attitude of, you know, religion, there's nothing wrong with religion. You know, it attempts to, to know God. But religion can be ritualistic, and, and when it turns into that, it's for the person. It's for, it's for the person who gets into that, you know. He does what he does for himself. He's not interested in repentance. Or there's genuine worship, and, and people are repentant over sin. Um, they, they seek the mercy of God. They have a broken heart over sin. That's the kind of stuff that goes on. And the problem I don't want to say, call them problems, but as we come together and we try to do things in the church, we have all these religious things that we should be doing, right? I mean, the scripture speaks to a lot of them, baptism, communion, church attendance, good works, doing serving people, that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe it's going to Bible studies, these types of things. And, and, and anytime those things, anytime you substitute truth for doing something, you know, we run into a problem. And the theme of Zechariah 7, which has been beating me up all week, is true worship as opposed to ritual. And, and we tend to clean ourselves up real good. I can walk in here and you can say, oh man, Mike's really got it together. And you don't know half the things that went on in my house, right? I mean, I might have been fighting with my wife all day. Who knows what's going on? But I can come in here and make a great face and everybody's looking at my wife. Was he fighting with you? <laughs> Wasn't fighting with her today. <laughs> so, so you can fool a lot of people. We can, we can do that. Um, but you know, we can make people believe that we're doing what's right. Um, but God goes beyond externals. And, you know, the, one of the most famous passages is 1 Samuel 16, 7, where it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God has always defined true worship by, as something that is from the heart and not a routine. Not... So we get to verses 1 through 3. So let's look at it here in chapter 7. It says, Now in the fourth year of Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev, when the people sent Sherezer and Regim Melech and his men to the house of the Lord, house of God, to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? So two years have passed. You know, we, we just break from six to seven, but two years have passed since his first um, visions and all that stuff. So God had comforted their hearts, given them these visions through Zechariah. It's now 518 B.C. The temple, they believe at this point in time, is about halfway built. So they're making real progress. The people are encouraged. The obstacles seem to be removed. You know, the rebuilding is going along in Jerusalem because of the decree of uh, Darius recorded in Ezra chapter 6. I may say Darius. I may say Darius. It'll come out all kinds of different ways. I don't know which way it's supposed to be. But in this moment, the word of the Lord comes based upon an inquiry that comes from these travelers that come. 
And the New King James reads, this is just kind of like a side note, but the New King James reads that the people came to the house of God. But just so we're clear, the house of God is not the temple. Um, house of God or Bethel was never used to describe the temple in the Old Testament. It was always used to describe a town or a location. So we're, they're coming to this location. And these men come down and want to know if they should continue ritual fasting and mourning. And God had only instituted one fast in the history of Israel, and, and it was that was permanent. Okay, so one fast. And that was the Day of Atonement. But through the years, uh, the, the Jews had set up a number of different fasts based upon different things. They started adding them based upon different things that happened in their culture. So a fast in the 10th month, I'll kind of lay them out here for you, was to commemorate, so they had one in the 10th month, to commemorate when the Babylonians began the siege on the city of Jerusalem. That was one fast. Um, another was in the fourth month when the city walls were broken through. They said, well, let's set up a fast for that. Uh, on the seventh month was when the Jewish governor, Gedaliah, had been assassinated. So they said, okay, we're going to fast about that one too. And then the fast in the fifth month, which he's asking about, was to remember the destruction of the temple. And so these men want to know, you know, the temple's being rebuilt. Um, should we continue... Uh, should we keep fasting? You know, the temple's being rebuilt. Can we, like, cut this one off? Do we need to do it anymore? I don't know. Seems like a valid question, right? But God knows the heart. So we get to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? God's asking them, was this, ever, was this fast ever real? In the 70 years, was it ever real? Were you mourning about, that your relationship to me had been destroyed? Were you fasting and mourning over your sin? Or were you just upset about the circumstances you found yourself in? You know, God knew. God continues to probe in verse, in verse 6, and he asks, who were you honoring when you ate and drank? Like, what were you doing then? Um, was, was God and obedience to him ever on your mind? Did, did they, they didn't regard God in any times of eating and drinking either. They, were, they weren't, and God's calling them out on that. Their fasts and their feasts were their own, and God was seldom considered. And the point is, you can worship and you can do, you can celebrate with a fast or you can celebrate with a feast anytime you want if it's truly done to honor and glorify the Lord. The deeper issue for Israel was that everything was performance and, and God was never honored. That was the big issue. They were upset about the consequences of their sin, not the sin itself. There's a difference there. They should have been devastated about the fact that their sin had led to the destruction of the one place where God's presence was dwelling with them. The true fast that God wants is one of a broken and contrite heart. And don't ever think that because you did some religious activity you, you, that you went through the formality, <coughs> formality of it that you worship God. That, that's what he's saying. But this is the tendency that we have as people, right? Um, I, I was, we're, we're fickle and we struggle to properly remain engaged when something becomes familiar. Um, I, was, I teach basketball, or try to anyway. And the, um, it just like simple examples of I ask, I'll grab the team together and say, we're going to run layups. And so I say, and, and you'll see them, you know, I have the heart that I want is that you're going to run in, you're going, you're going to run full speed, you're going to jump as high as you possibly can, the rebounder is going to come over, he's going to grab the ball, he's going to make a good catch, he's going to turn, he's going to pivot and make a great pass. Well, you know, I, then you watch them and you say, okay, we're running layups and people are walking up, they're laying it off the glass, they're flipping it over their head, they're doing, and I got to stop it all and go, this is not the heart of what I wanted you to do. You're, yeah, you're running layups, but you missed the whole intent of why we're doing this. There's something bigger. You know, it, it's like when you ask your kids to clean their room, it's, well, it's like, stuff's kicked under the bed, it's shoved in closets. It's like, well, that was not the intent of what I wanted you to do. And you missed the heart of the one who had asked you to do something. And that's what we're seeing here. They, they were doing this stuff, you know. God didn't even institute it, and they were doing it because they were going to do some religious activity. And 
there's an aspect here where we got to know the heart of the one who's asking us to do these things. It's, this can manifest itself in the church, and that's what I was thinking about. Is like we take communion here, and I think our church does an amazing job. It was one of the things that was amazing when I came here is that Tim, or whoever happens to be leading that day, takes the time to stop us, open the scriptures, and say, why are we doing this? This isn't just we're eating a cracker and drinking some juice. We are remembering that Christ came, what he did. That's why we're supposed to be doing it. So we have to stop. We have to stop everybody and go, hold on a second. Don't take this if you shouldn't take it. You know, Take some time and think about it. Is, is that what God truly wants? Um, we never want it to become a routine here. That's, that's what we don't want. It might be Sunday and Wednesday church attendance. Am I showing up because I got a, it feels right. I know I should be here. It's like, well, if that's why you're here, you know, just to check it off a list, that is not, yeah, we should come together. God calls us to come together. But because he knows there's blessing when we gather together, when we're here together, we can, we're supposed to be in his word. You know, we're, we're doing those things because he knows the encouragement and love that comes from it. But if it stops at just, okay, I'm going to check that off, you know, checking it off my personal logbook, you know, are you fighting with people when you get here? It's like, I oh, can't wait till this thing gets over and I'm going home and blah, that, that becomes your life. You like, I think God is looking at it going, you didn't come into my house. You didn't come here today. You know, that was, that was something completely different. Are we preparing our hearts when we come to church? That's, that's like something significant. Are, are you coming at home and you're saying, Lord, I'm going to come into this place and I know Mike might be preaching, but I still pray that I'm going to get something out of it. You know, you may say that. But are you, you're saying, what is, Lord, what do you have for me today? We're going to open the word. Your word is going to be proclaimed. And if, do I have a fertile heart that's going to listen to listen so that you can speak to me, Lord, tonight? I mean, it takes, it takes some sort of something in your brain to say, I'm not going to make this routine today when I come on Sunday or I come on Wednesday. I want the Lord to speak to me. Um, I was thinking about worship. Worship is another area where we can just come in and routine it. You know, we, oh, I know this song and I sing and my mind goes off to wherever. I think it's another reason why we take 30 seconds and just kind of stop it all. And we say, Lord, please, in this moment, help us because we're so fickle. Can we just remember why we're worshiping? What is the purpose of what we're doing? Because we never want to be in a position where we don't honor God. He doesn't, he doesn't like it. He says, did you ever do it for me? And I think the most interesting, that's just in the church. And then it comes to when you look in the New Testament and Paul's talking about do all to the glory of God. So now we take the church out of the mix. That's just that's where we can fake it really good. So when we come back out and we go out into the world, um, I think it's even more crucial. Are we honoring God with everything that we're doing? Is that what's going on in our life? Am I waking up in the morning? It's the same thing, saying, Lord, I, I need the Holy Spirit. We talked about it in previous chapters where... It was by the Spirit that things are going to get done. You know, am I seeking the Lord's face? And I, I, I don't know about you, but it's, it is so difficult. The Spirit is fighting against the flesh all the time to make routine, just checking things off lists, and God's calling for relationship. He's calling for something deeper, and that's what he wants here, and, and he's asking them about it. So he's coming to them with a negative, and he's saying, is this ritual, is it genuine? If you're, if you're struggling in this area, I just want to tell you, you know, seek the Lord in, in prayer about your relationship, about the right heart attitude. God, I don't want anything to be routine. I want it to be genuine in everything that I'm going to do. And he says, um, God tells him, you should have listened to the prophets. So instead of being all routine you should have listened to the prophets in verse 7. Obedience to the word of God was the issue. At that time, the Southlands and the Lowlands were uninhabited because of the exile. Negev was in the south, uh, Shafela is in the west, and, and all the lands in between were called the lowlands. And we, we have a picture, basically, of the whole land, and God was stressing that, that it was about heeding the instructions of the Word of God, and now it's all been wiped out. Do you see what not walking in obedience to me had done? It wiped everything out. No one was there anymore. Lack of obedience led to that, decimated everything. So, as we think about what we do as a church, as people, you know, don't focus on religious activities. We're focusing on that relationship that God wants us to have with him, obeying the Lord, walking out. And you see it, we, we started out with the parable, but 
the Pharisees ran into this problem. This was like the thing that just kind of spread itself all the way down to Jesus' time, and Jesus is like laying it out for him, like, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, and you're, there's wickedness all inside of you. You'd missed the complete point of what we're doing. So we don't want to be in that position, and, and that's what he's calling them out to here. Don't let everything, anything become routine. Demonstrate your love for God by seeking his face. And we pick up in verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, <laughs> shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his servant through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned. For they made the pleasant land desolate. The word of the Lord comes a second time. God lays out some of the issues that led to captivity. The people were failing to treat their fellow citizens with decency, human decency. God had told the people, execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion to everyone. Don't oppress the widows, orphans, aliens, and poor. Basically, those who are most in need, don't do that. And don't plan evil in your heart against your brother. And one way to look at the problems they were having is they were preferring certain people over others. That, that's what was going on. You're not, you're not to give certain people justice because they have money. You, you aren't to show partiality or to play favorites. You show mercy and compassion. That's what God wants them to do. Help those who are helpless, need the help. These are signs of true religion, regenerated heart, because God's heart is loving people. And when love flows genuinely out of our hearts towards others, it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle they're on, whether they mask, don't vax, vax, don't vax, you know, none of those things matter. Whatever the hot topic, uh, hot button topic is of the day, none of those things matter. Compassion, love, mercy will flow out of the hearts of people. It says, and let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother, which God says, you can't worship me if you have bitterness towards your brother. If you, if you have an issue with someone in the church, God wants it taken care of. The church is made up of all kinds of different personalities, and we're all coming together, people getting on people's nerves all the time. I get it. But, you know, we, we're growing together. We're all in these different stages. <clears throat> God's working in our lives, but when Bitterness festers in the hearts of people. It, it'll just ruin the inside of the body and the church will fall apart. And so God does not take this lightly and, and neither should we. It was one of the things that led to Israel being sent into captivity. And he says, the generation before you didn't listen. They substituted ritual for reality. They didn't take God's word seriously. They turned a rebellious shoulder. And I, you see that. And then, you know, we've all dealt with little kids that, you know, turn the shoulder and they're like, eh. When you ask them to do something and they do that, that's the first move, right? Turn your shoulder. Then they stop their ears. Yeah. How many of you have like, talked to a kid and he's like, nah, 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 and got their fingers in their ears? Like, oh my goodness, this is what they were doing. God said they plug in their ears. Um, the, and they were like flint. This word is like hard as a diamond. So look at the progression of what happened to them. They began with a refusal to heed. Okay, I'm not going to listen to what God has to say. That led to the shrugging. Like, uh, no, don't talk to me about it. And then they'd plug in their ears. They didn't want to hear what God had to say until their hearts were so hard. It was like a diamond, so hard that nothing could get through. So this just speaks to what can happen when we head down this path of not allowing God to work in our hearts. You know, we think it's small. We think it's, yeah, okay, I'm going to, you know, do my own thing. It's not that big of a deal. And then it keeps progressing in our hearts. It gets so much worse. We need to keep short accounts of sin, you know, asking like the psalmist did, Psalm 139, you know, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. Like that's, that's got to be our prayer in the morning, Lord, and in the evening, in the afternoon, and however your day is going. Seek, seek the Lord out in those areas. God wants you in a place of blessing. So it got so bad that they refused to listen to prophets that God stopped listening to them as well. Like that's what it says here. And he scattered them like the whirlwind. The Babylonians came through, took them captive. But God wants them to know he's the one that allowed it. This was God's punishment. And he was bringing about this judgment. 
And we're going to get through eight because they're tied together. And, and eight is it's long, but it's quick. So, so chapter eight is a continuation of seven. And, you know, chapter eight, um, in, in chapter seven, Israel was to repent and live righteously after their punishment from captivity. But here in chapter eight, God calls on Israel to repent and live righteously because of the promise of the future restoration. That's what we're going to see. And so he answered their inquiry in a negative in chapter 7. Should we keep fasting? You started it. You weren't doing it for me anyway, you know. But here in chapter 8, he, he answers the inquiry in a positive. Um, so there's two basic divisions here in chapter 8. One gives us the key phrase. Again, the word of the Lord came, of hosts came to me saying, and then in verse 18, it says, and the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me saying. So God gives them promises of the kingdom, in 1 through 17, and then God tells them the result of that in 18 through 23. And all throughout it, you're going to see, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, in verse 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 14, 19. You get, you get this picture. This is all coming from the Lord. He continues to repeat that it's all from the Lord because it's so marvelous. So he says, again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor I am zealous for her. So God had said this before, that he was zealous for them, jealous for his people. And God wants it to be clear and reiterate that he, he has this towards them. Everything that is laid out for the future of Israel begins with the knowledge that God was jealous for his people. That's why he's going to do this stuff. So verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, there's a day he says he's coming back. He's going to, his divine presence will abide with them again. Um, the Jews had never known the glory. These people had never known the glory of God since it had left and, and when they went to Babylon, right? And so in Zechariah's time, the presence of God was just a, a, a memory in their mind. And here it says he's dwelling. He's going to abide, reside. He's going to settle down with them. He's going to come back. He's going to transform Jerusalem into a city of truth. It's going to be called a holy mountain because it's the residence of the holy God. And so we mentioned it before, but, you know, anywhere we allow the presence of God to dwell, you know, becomes transformed and becomes holy. And anywhere God reigns will be noticeably different when God's reigning there. And when we submit to him, he's always working in our lives to cleanse impurity away in us so that we become this holy place that people will go to, the one to know. So are we allowing God to reign in our lives is kind of what, what I want to know here. Does, does he have full authority to tell us where to go, what to do? Are we like those angels that are just waiting there at any moment to go when God calls us to go? Are we submitting to him daily? In verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Doesn't that sound cool? When God comes to dwell with his people, the streets are going to be full of old people and kids. <laughs> old people and kids. So this is a picture of the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is going to be uh, populated with all kinds of old people because there's not going to be this, there's going to be wars, calamity, old people and children playing without fear. And if you think about the city at this time, you know, they're trying to rebuild a city. So people trying to make that travel from Babylon back, old people and kids not going to make that trip. They're not going to be part of it. There was a mission that was going on. So the work that was going to be done uh, wasn't a place for old people and young and little kids to be. And, you know, the weakest, the, the weakest in society, you know, and when old and young are not around, you know, there's a different vibe. There's, there's, you're missing something. Uh, one commentator that I read made this comment. He said, you can measure the health of a society based on the place that the old and young have in that society. And we're, we're living in a society that's killing babies before they're even born. You know, where, how does our society look at people? And the heart of God is to bring rest and comfort to those who are in need. And this, this, would, have been, this would have been something really comforting. Oh, my goodness, this place is going to be filled again. This is going to be a peace that we needed. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? These things may have seemed too marvelous to believe. You know, looking around the, the mess they had there in Jerusalem. 
based on the current situation, but it wasn't too marvelous for God. You know, God's promises of blessings were as hard to believe as that for them as it was that the judgment was coming before they got exiled. You know, they, they couldn't believe what God was saying, that this was going to be something. Was it too marvelous? Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And God declares that in the kingdom, he's going to regather the Jews from everywhere. They're going to come back. And we can look today. There's a partial fulfillment today. We're seeing people go back. But this is going to be a future to come. It's going to be amazing. And it says, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This isn't just like I'm bringing them back politically and economically. This is an intimate fellowship based on God's covenant with them. He's gathering them for conversion, and the nation's going to come to Christ. As Romans 11 says, all Israel is going to be saved, and that's one of the things we're seeing here. So verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built, for before the days, before these days, there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from your enemy, from the enemy, for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men everywhere against his neighbor. He's saying, let your hands be strong. It's an idiom for take, you know, be of good courage, strengthen yourself. All you've been alive during this time of Zechariah and Haggai, he was just kind of reminding them how tough things have been. There wasn't money to pay people. There weren't ways to provide to have animals. There wasn't any peace. There were all kinds of conflict and affliction. The people set against their neighbor. This, this first group that came back that laid the foundation, but everything went bad. It was, you know, they had the Samaritans coming against them. So 11 says, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of, this, remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. There's a big but now right here. It says, I'm not going to treat you like the remnant of the people in the former days. He's promising that, you know, you've had hard times. Hard times are going to be over. You're going to be blessed. God was going to, got great prosperity in store for Israel. What a, what a transforming thing they needed. There was going to be a transforming work in the lives of these people. Uh, they weren't going to be a curse among the nations. They were going to be a blessing. And this is just another beautiful picture of God's sal salvific work, you know, when he brings salvation. In many ways, we're slaves to the curse of the fall. That happens in our lives. But Christ, in Christ, we're transformed to be a blessing in this world. Um, Romans 6 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. And that's what's going to happen to Israel. They're going to be this blessing. They're going to be this righteousness. Verse 14 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I'm determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. They had experienced the punishment. They were in Babylon. They had done all that. And God uh, had brought it to pass. He was faithful. And to that same degree, he says, I'm going to do the same thing. You're going to experience blessing. He will be faithful to his word when he blesses and, and when he brings punishment. It's a shame they had to learn God's faithfulness through being sent off to Babylon, but they learned it. And verse 16 says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. You know, when God says something he hates, you should probably perk your ears up. They had asked about what they should do with regards to the fast. And God is now laying out his expectations. Being religious wasn't it. <clears throat> Here we see God's heart for the people. Obedience to God was more important than just the religious activities. So wouldn't it be easier to obey than to focus on the externals? What does he say here? He says, speak each man the truth to his neighbor. D don't be deceptive and lying. Don't do that stuff. 
This is the way of the world. That's, that's how people get ahead, how they deal with people, lying, deceit, those kind of practices. That's not the heart of God. He says, give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. They were called to promote peace in their community and justice. And these are speaking to the heart of God, how society should function when he's ruling, when his people walk in his ways. And all this blessing is coming from obedience to God. The opposite of these are what led to the captivity, the, these types of attitudes. And so God is laying out the things that are expected of his people once again. Then the word of the Lord in verse 18 says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So what about those fasts? God says he's going to turn them into feasts. The weeping, the mourning of the fasts are going to be transformed. God says, someday I'm going to take all this, all those fasts, I'm going to turn them into joyful gladness and feasts. In verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. People all over the world are going to be getting together to go to Jesus. Millions of people around the world migrating to Jerusalem to see the glorified Christ, to be converted. It's a glorious future. So verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. The world's going to take a look at the Jews and say, these are the people, these are them. All the hardship that Israel had been through and then in that day, people will know that God is with them. How amazing is that? They'll be ambassadors like they were always meant to be and the number 10 represents uh, all peoples. It's kind of, that, kind of that mindset. 10 men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man. And I love this word. This, the same word grasp is used in Exodus to, to, about grabbing a snake by the tail or grabbing a lion by its beard in, in 1 Samuel. It means to grasp something that you can't afford to let go. That's what it's going to be. I, I got to go see this. So people will finally realize and understand the goodness of God and desire to be with him. And honestly, today we're living as ambassadors. We're, we're, that's, that's what God's called us to do, that Israel is going to one day be, we are the ambassadors right now. And one of our missions, directing men and women to Christ, to reveal to them that he is so blessed and gracious and merciful that they should want to know him as well, just to come to him. So it, it can be easy to replace True devotion to God with, with, with a counterfeit, you know, relationship with just going through the motions. And, and God really wants us to have a desire for him to, to get above shallow, meaningless externals and those activities that, that don't honor him. And I think God's calling them out for that. And it's a problem today that we got to seek the Lord, seek, seek the Holy Spirit to just work in our hearts. So why don't we pray? So Lord, I just thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, to just know your heart for you know, how you want relationship with us, how you want us to just be uh, not going through the motions, Lord. And I just pray that that's not happening in any of our lives, Lord. Help us to be, just to be diligent in, in our walk with you, God, to just seeking your face. And God, may your Holy Spirit just, uh, just get a hold of our hearts, Lord. And Lord, we want to we honor you. We thank you so much for salvation. We thank you for your great love and your mercy, God. Have you been so unbelievably merciful and kind and gracious to everyone in this room, Lord? And we just are so thankful that you are a good and awesome God. And we just praise you, Father, for, for this night. Thank you, God, for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.